gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 12, the review segment for Friday, February 28th, 2014. It's not a leap year, so this is the last day of February. Say goodbye, everybody. And we're sending it out in style by reviewing Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, which actually comes out next week. So this is a sneak peek at, I mean, probably top of the list for movies for the next month or so, I'd say. It's been kind of a long January and February, but Grand Budapest Hotel was this obvious highlight on the horizon. And now that it's here, maybe miraculously, I feel like with our crowd, you might expect us all to really fall in line on it. But I'm almost surprised by how much the three of us, I'm here with Patches and David, uh, seem to really like this movie. What, really we can't we can't enjoy things together? No, I just kind of, I don't know. Like Love making of, in the war room? I was left a little cold <laughs> by Moonrise Kingdom, a movie that I really kept How? How is like. that possible? What? I don't know. I, listen, I've been hearing that from a few people recently, and I'm just like, what, history's greatest monster. Have you Who seen it? People? Have you only seen it once, Katie? No, I actually watched it again on uh, Blu-ray or something, trying kind of trying to figure out what I had missed, and it still just didn't connect with me. You know what movie leaves me cold to kill any goodwill that <laughs> going to bat for Moonrise Kingdom might earn me is the Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. See that one I, I think love. Wes Anderson. I, do enjoy I think that Wes film. Anderson is getting better with age. I think uh, the Grand Budapest is one uh, hotel, which I will. Uh, I don't know. I don't really want to set up. I'll leave it to one of you guys. Is one of his very best movies, as could be said. I think of Moonrise Kingdom and most definitely of the Fantastic Mr. You Fox, know what which we are should do? Most recent films. Um, we should each. We should each recount part of this of the Grand Budapest synopsis. You know, we can like, each claim a timeline. Yeah, yeah. we should okay. each claim Nicely a timeline. Written out oh, on my yeah. review well, on Badass yeah, yeah. Digest. Patches gets the Tom Wilkinson timeline, which takes yes. seconds. Okay, good, perfect. Yes, so the film opens in the eighties, I believe, like nineteen eighty-five or eighty-three. Uh, correct. The film, I believe, actually has a fourth timeline. Is it with present girl, day? Uh, with, with it the girl is the roughly in the present. Oh, day. we were debating that. We couldn't tell if she just looked kind of eighties punk. Or if she existed in the same timeline. I I cannot say with any authority. But, okay. But, uh, and this is not a spoiler in the least bit. This is like the first 90 seconds of the movie, people. Uh, The bust is of the author, uh, who is played by Tom Wilkinson. We'll lay that out in a second. Uh, She's holding his book. He is reading from his book in the 1980s timeline. But I think he's dead because that's why she goes and like leaves a key on. I can under- I can thing. believe that. I can believe that I, theory, and we're hearing like his 80s. voice because it's the book he's written. I prefer, and unless I'm shown definitive proof, which I would accept, I prefer to think of it as a fourth time. I, I can right. understand that. So we open up present day with a girl reading this book, which I believe is called The Grand Budapest Hotel. I believe it, it is indeed. And um, then we flash back to sometime in the '80s where. Tom Wilkinson, who plays the author, I don't know if he has a real name. He does not. Um, is is recount? He's going to begin his recounting the tale of the Grand Budapest Hotel when he was a young man. When he was an author, he met this man, uh, Mr. Mustafa, who owns the Grand Budapest Hotel. And so that's, we're in timeline. Three and that is now, when we flash back to the '60s and David, uh, <laughs> popcorn where David, a, fic- a fictionalized version of the author, who's played by Jude Law. Uh, travels to this hotel atop the uh, snowy peak in the fictional republic of Zubrauka, 
which is an Eastern European country uh, that you know you can you can inspect how it looks. Although Wes Anderson makes it look like a rotted cake in the 1960s portion, at least, uh, where he encounters F. Marie Abraham, who is Mr. Mustafa, the owner of the hotel, and Jude Law. Uh, Eventually, yada, 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 gets to talking over dinner with Mustafa, and Mustafa tells him about how he came to own the Grand Budapest Hotel in the 1930s, where the overwhelming majority of the movie takes place. So we leap back to timeline number four, we're going to call it, in the 1930s, where Katie... Oh my god, you guys are giving me... Where most everything is happening, basically, you've got this kid, Zero Mustafa, who becomes F. Mary Abraham and is played by a kid named... I don't know. He's... Tony... Tony Revolori. Nicely done. He is he's basically the only person in this movie who has not been nominated for an Oscar because the rest of it is populated by the likes of Ray Fiennes, who plays the concierge of the Grand Budapest Hotel, who takes this kid Zero under his wing. Gustav H. Gustav the main, H. Certain the main character. I yeah, think, the, definitely be. the main character. I think the heart of the film. He has been carrying on this love affair with a very elderly woman played by Tilda Swinton in hilarious old age. Several very elderly well, women. Okay. It's Hang sort on. of his thing. I'm trying to get to the nut of the story. <laughs> he has basically. a taste for mature. He has a taste. He has a taste for mature women. He's a very good concierge. She takes very good care of people. He has this very refined continental British accent. It's funny because almost everyone in the movie is using their completely natural accent down to Sir Sharon and uh, having an Irish accent for maybe the first time I've ever seen her own film. <laughs> but, but I think it's important to point out that his – I think this is really an extension of his commitment to a certain decorum and way of attending to his customers because I think uh, it, it is – Rather clear that Gustav is a gay man at a time that is not particularly kind to gay men. Wait, okay, hang on. You put me in charge of the plot, and you're already going for subtitles. <laughs> yes, well, I'm filling up your. Ho- I think he's narrating as F. Murray Abraham right now. <laughs> I, know. I, 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 w- I wish when I spoke, F. Murray Abraham. Oh my god! Out, and I think <laughs> he a lot is of so do, good. A lot of our <laughs> listeners do as well. He's so good in this movie. Um. So one of the many women who Gustav has been carrying on an affair with, played by Tilda Swinton, dies. She then has a will that is read, and it leaves to Gustav the uh, the painting boy with apple, which is very uh, is worth a lot of money. Her son Adrian Brody is furious about this. Uh, he sends a goon played by Willem Dafoe after Gustav to get the painting back. After Gustav runs away from the wake to, or the will reading to steal it, um, and lots of hijinks and running over mountaintops ensue. A lot of people get involved in these adventures over the process of us. There's Edward Norton. There's Bill Murray. There's Owen Wilson. There's, uh, I said, Jeff Goldblum already. Bob Balaban shows up for half a second. Harvey Keitel shows up for a little while. There's a prison break. What else am I missing here? There's a lot going <laughs> Oddly on. Oddly enough. Richard Runnin plays a baker. A few, a few people told me. a birthmark shaped like Mexico on her Yeah, face. that was very strange. A lot of people told me they thought this, like, oh, what a fun caper film. I don't know if I, well, I would describe this parts. as a caper film. I would describe it as a caper that has surprising amounts of violence and sadness in it, too. Well, uh, as capers well, rarely have those things. Well, no. I mean, with the violence, especially for a Wes Anderson movie, really took me by surprise. I don't think I'd ever seen a movie with this amount of violence. I guess the bounciness caper. makes people think of, like, madcap caper mystery stuff. But. Caper. To skip or dance about in a lively or playful way. Or, okay. informally... An activity or escapade, typically one that is illicit or ridiculous, which I think this film is both. <laughs> I will then... I An will, amusing or far-fetched yes. story, especially one presented on film. I, okay. I take it back. This is 100% a caper film. <laughs> going back to that idea of sadness, I think that that is the absolute heart of the movie, which is an elegy for a way of doing things in a time that is past, a certain decorum that has been... Uh, 
lost due to the horrors and ravages of the latter half of the 20th century, in particular World War II, which is encroaching around uh, this entire movie like something trying to snuff out a light. It's so frightening. Uh, it's so spine-tingling yeah. in a way I wasn't expecting. Even when even Wes Anderson the... has, like, danger in his films, I think of Darjeeling Limited and, and the reality of that film and all the scares there. Uh, I was never really moved. I hate Darjeeling Limited, I should actually say. Hate. I hate it. Oh, that, that's the implosion of this Anderson This is his darkest me. movie by yes. a long stretch. Yeah. It's a uh, terrifying Film. And even it, though Edward Norton is playing one of the uh, pseudo Nazis, which is surprising well, that they pull that off, his uh, pseudo is even I think a bit strong for his character. He's really playing the uh, equivalent in this particular world of the same character that he played in Moonrise Kingdom in a way. Sure, but uh, but I mean I think that um, uh, yeah, it's his darkest film. I think even though it is very confectionary in, in its appearance, certainly, and I think um, as a lot of and in its cakes pointed out. Yeah, and, no, of, it's cakes. I mean, it, it is uh, it is as art directed, if not more so, as anything Wes Anderson has done. It's uh, they the wonders they did to this department store where they they gutted and turned into this amazing vertical hotel uh, are really incredible. And also, uh, just if in case you were worried about being confused by these various timelines, uh, Robert Yeoman, the DP, who's worked with Wes Anderson for a while now, and Wes Anderson devised this very simple system of changing the aspect ratio when they go between time periods, um, essentially going from the widest aspect ratio possible to more of an academy ratio, uh, something close to 4-3 uh, for the uh, brunt of the movie in the 1930s. And it just makes a very... It not only it provides a very simple shorthand for where you are in time, but it also serves for a movie that so explicitly references the movies of this particular time, uh, certainly Lubitsch and some early Billy Wilder. Uh, it serves to sort of mirror the trajectory of how film was developed and going from a more of a boxy presentation to anamorphic. I would, I would like to hear you expand on the Lubitsch comparisons in a second. I just want to also add that I think that the boxy... Um, shooting style of of the the thrust of the movie really serves this hotel, like you were saying, this this amazing boxed in area on the top of a mountain, and it's just it's perfectly framed in every instance, but in a way that I I, I didn't feel the deliberateness of a Wes Anderson movie necessarily in Grand Budapest Hotel, oh, really? which was weird. Yeah, I I mean I I feel the precision, um, but I think the pace, the bounciness, and how imp- um the heightened. Uh, you know, you know, Moonrise Kingdom had this theatrical quality to it, uh, which really helped make those uh, production design decisions and those those very often um, just the heightened aspects of the stories kind of disappear into the fabric of of the storytelling, uh, or it's very storybook. And Grand Budapest is is kind of similar. If there was ever a pop up book made about you know yes. war stricken um eastern europe this this would be it and for me all those deliberate choices really kind of disappear the style i i like i mentioned darjeeling was a kind of an implosion of the anderson style to me where this is hyper precision to a way that allows it to bounce with such ferocity um and again like i think the the boxy academy ratio really plays to that everything is so geometric and 
and yet it and can be really that fluid. That widescreen doesn't, so you yeah. can get like, the full to the see four people on like of yeah four hotel. stories of a building is just and mm. to see the action play on all those levels is really astonishing. But we should also say that you know you don't need the the different the ratio aspect ratio switching to to keep track of these timelines. No. This script no. is not Wes Anderson's <laughs> Inception or something like that. And the like production that. design I mean, is really incredibly precise and wonderful right. for that too. I think it is Wes Anderson's Inception, but that doesn't mean that it he doesn't cut around between the storylines it's like a ladder uh you never really go um from like you know inception would cut from the deepest dream layer to the topmost dream layer but here you can only take one step at a time and it's always all the way down and then for the most part just all the way back up so it's very simple but i do think that what patches was saying about it being a pop-up book and, and having that idea of storytelling is also sort of at the heart of this movie um which is i think more so than any of wes anderson's previous films about storytelling as a whole and explicitly about Wes Anderson's approach to storytelling in his films. Uh, I mean, I think that it is a celebration and, and a, in its own sort of um, wistful way it, of all of the tropes that people have sort of criticized Wes Anderson films for embracing, all of these things that are sort of um, uh, isolated and airless that, that exist in their own little world. And it goes back to this guy named Stefan Zweig, who was a writer who the Gustav character is very closely based on. The press notes go a great He's referenced to, at the uh, end of the film in the credits. Yeah. Right, yeah, and there's a whole excerpt from a biography about him in the, in the press notes that really sort of trump up who he was, and I was reading them on the plane to Berlin, not unfortunately familiar with who Stefan Zweig was, and thinking that it was an invention of Wes Anderson's, because if this guy didn't exist, Wes Anderson would have to invent him. <laughs> uh, but it, what he says in the in these notes is why give up a fantasy world if reality is a nightmare, which speaks to Gustav's nature of having this immaculately cared for and, and operated hotel, even with the threat and specter of world war two building around him. He still wants this environment hermetically sealed to remain perfect because he can control it. And the rest of the world is t- a terrible, terrible place on the brink of horrors. He can't even imagine. And I think when you look at how, uh, you know, tightly controlled Wes Anderson's films are and some of the, the various uh, bonds that they celebrate, the, um, the, what's the word I'm looking for? It starts with a V. It means to have like a shared vocation. Uh, like <laughs> the, there's all sorts of vocational solidarity in his movies, especially in this one with this thing called the, like, uh, the Brotherhood of the Key or something like that. I can't remember what it is of all these hotel concierges. But you can see in all of Wes Anderson's films, there's this sort of vocational solidarity. I mean, there are all these things that he's used time and time again that people have come to see as almost like self-parody for him or have mocked him for or lead to you know harmless and amusing things like that SNL tribute. I think this movie really celebrates their genuine value and importance. Um, and I think it's a testament to Wes Anderson that he's able to pull it off in its own you know, meaningful way. On the topic of other Wes Anderson tropes that come up and again, the idea that a lot of his movies include nostalgia for things that may or may not have ever existed, like the way that Royal Tenenbaums is set in this basically non-existent New York and Rushmore is all about the, you know, these people trying to reclaim a school that may or may not be exactly what they think it is. And Grand Budapest Hotel is obviously set in this very plainly fictional place and you've got Gustav who's hanging on to this way of life that doesn't really exist anymore. But it's a nostalgia for a way of life that kind of did exist and that's what give it gives it such 
such this intense sadness. Like it is this pop-up fantasy book and it is, again, having us kind of wonder about the good old days when these things existed. But then when you get the encroaching reality of World War II, you kind of realize it did exist in a way. And it's this fascinating layer of sadness of a way to look at the past that kind of invents what it was really like that still gets at this giant loss. Do you think that the movie is nostalgic? Yeah. Interesting. I wouldn't call it that. Because I think, well, I think that Gustav is nostalgic and i think that it embraces his way like david was saying like why not why embrace reality when reality is so horrifying i think it really allows him to i think it supports that point of view and i think when you're spending that time with Jude law in the 60s version of the hotel and you see just what a wreck it's become like what has been made of this amazing place i think it allows you to kind of look back hmm. on that past and knowing that it's partially invented and it wasn't as good as it seemed but still be uh, nostalgic for it. To me, I have a real, uh, I see a real distinction in Anderson loving theatrics and loving what he can do with the medium and all the possibilities that seemed so fruitful back in the day and maybe that film today doesn't take advantage of and and kind of using his blueprints here as, as a way to wring as much cinema out of it as he can. I, I see a difference between that and nostalgia, which I think some of his earlier films playing with pop music and, and you don't find that in Grand Budapest Hotel. And that plays very differently to me. Like it doesn't seem nostalgic. It just seems to, to um, wishfully f- remember those. Uh, <laughs> maybe there's I not think a difference. You're splitting a pretty fine line there. I don't know. David, do you see Grand Budapest Hotel as, as a nostalgic film uh i mean it depends how what your definition of nostalgia is i think in the uh in the dictionary sense if we're going to go back to the dictionary for the second time on review uh yeah i think it's an extraordinarily nostalgic thing but i think that you know rather than boil it down to one word which can be extrapolated in a number of different ways i'll just come up with my own definition and say you know it's a movie that that mourns a lost past that says you know things were it mourns what's what's gone, a way of doing things, a certain civility that has been lost. And I think whether or not Wes Anderson ever knew that or like lived in that time, which would, I guess, be crucial to the definition of nostalgia. It's like something that he f- like. Can you ha- can you be nostalgic for something that you never personally that's what experienced? Because that's what I don't believe. So, I don't believe I think you can. I think you can, and I think that's a uh, lot regardless. Of I mean, rather than splitting hairs, I think that Split the hairs. if we can agree, if we can agree, that's what the film's about. Whatever you want to call it. Um, I think there's uh, that it's overwhelmingly, and it, when the movie hits you, I mean, it's such a this light and frenzied thing for the most part, but it hits you as such a wallop out of nowhere. I mean, it's been sneakily snowballing over the course of a hundred minutes, and you can't even see it happening, and then it just bowls you over right at the very, very, very end. I mean, the last shot cuts off so abruptly, maybe I mean, by design, of course, but I mean, it's it's not like those things happen by accident, but. Uh, but well, she finishes, you know. Uh, you know uh, yeah, I mean, it's, but it's just like, and then, and, and you're just like, oh, like, it's, <laughs> and it just sort of, uh, but I think that, you know, I, to tie it back to the Lubitsch thing, Lubitsch yes, was, um, uh, there's a movie called People on Sunday. It's in the Criterion Collection. Uh, it was uh, Billy Wilder, who was a name that sprang to mind while I was watching Grand Budapest Hotel as well, uh, was involved in, he wrote the script. And it's about, uh, it's a film from 19... 19- 20, 1930 and it's it's there's like a light plot but for the most part it's about these handful of like attractive young german people um hanging out on the weekends in weimar era berlin they go to the beach they hang out they have fun but the movie takes on this even though it was 1930 it has this whole 
other haunting quality because you know that this this joy is so short lived that there are these you know unfathomable evils heading their way. Uh, you're not sure to what end they're going to fall, and it's not really a question because when they were making the movie, they didn't really know either. You don't know uh, what roles these people are going to play in World War Two, but there's this. It's taken on this ideal of like what this time is gone, and and you watch the movie, and there's this like. It, it seems more of an elegy for this thing than, than anything else, and then this like light diverting entertainment, and it takes on this immense quality of sadness. And that was the movie more than anything else, more than the Lubitsch stuff, like uh, like the Love Parade, and and uh, you know by the time you get to this great like the Merry Widow, these movies that have this very like you know a lot of with Maurice Chevalier, you get this like very bouncy, nondescript European sense of romance. Um, and by the time you have Willem Dafoe skiing after. Uh, <laughs> Ray Fiennes in like a Ernst Lubitsch uh, Bond movie, uh, you know, it, it, it all feels like it's part of that world. But the people on Sunday and that feeling never went away in my head. Uh, that was really the one constant touch point for me. And I think it speaks to the, the fact that this movie is clouded by uh, an immense sadness, whatever you want to call it, nostalgia or otherwise. While also being very funny, I think is worth saying. Very funny. Ray Fiennes is... Ray Fiennes is so good. I will say that I think he is... The Gustav H is the best lead character that any Wes Anderson movie has ever had. At least any live action. Mm. I was going to say, movie. you're going to say that about Mr. Fox? <laughs> at least... He, I mean, I don't think that like he's ever specialized in having really strong main characters. Even I mean, in I Rushmore? Have an attachment. Yeah, but like Ray, Ray Fiennes... Is so owns this movie. He does so. He's such the driving engine of it. He's so much more interesting and fun to watch to me than than Max. He has a lot. Rushmore. Yeah, he has a lot of layers. And what I find very hysterical and compelling in this movie is how he has this facade of elegance that he has to kind of parade around the Grand Budapest Hotel when he is, you know, working with the clientele and and living the life of the Grand Budapest Hotel, but one instance of danger can send him cussing up a storm, which I find <laughs> hilarious. There's a part where, well, I won't spoil anything towards the end of the film, but, I mean, he's a loose cannon, and I love that about him. But he can also be very elegant when he's um, planning some big operations. You know, he ends up in prison at some point, and he's befriending all the gentlemen in the prison. Uh, and including I, I, Harvey Keitel. Including Harvey exactly Keitel. Exactly like Harvey Keitel. Um, Did you guys, were you guys as amused by everyone using their own accents as I was? I thought it was such a charming, weird detail that Saoirse Ronan is Irish, and Adrian Brody and Harvey Keitel are American, and Ray Fiennes is English, and just nobody seems to care. I mean, for me, I think it's, a, it's definitely an interesting point to bring up i wasn't i can't say that i was amused by it in the movie but i think it speaks to how the fact that, like this is not a it's a fictional country but b whatever country it is it's wes anderson's world yeah. uh and you don't think of it as like oh she's from ireland you're just like okay like it fits sure character fits into wes anderson's world and that's really all the only test she has to pass yeah. you know it's like how you'd have a cousin named christopherson in uh fantastic yeah why not <laughs> that's a name that's to have um i mean do you guys want to compare i mean we've compared it to other wes anderson movies i'm just trying to think of what, like what could sell someone on this that maybe would you think someone who doesn't like wes anderson would be sold on this someone needs to be sold on this um i don't know like i mean there are people who are skeptics and they're gonna be they're gonna hear us say it's like a pop-up book and be like oh bro well i did sit next to somebody at grand budapest hotel who did who has not enjoyed wes anderson's films in the past and um was bowled over by grand budapest hotel so that says something i suppose but um i'm i'm, I'm not 
I don't think I'm with you, Katie, where I was cold on Moonrise. I, I liked Moonrise Kingdom quite a bit and had some issues with it. Um, but I I lost my mind over Grand Budapest Hotel. For people who listen to this, everyone knows that I love movie music. And I think Alexandra Desplat's score is a character in this film that I, I mean, I could never have expected everything that he puts into this movie and how he bumps it along without ever really intruding or overpowering it. Uh, it's really something to behold, I think. It's a really good yeah, score. Yeah, I mean, it's a great score. I mean, his work on Moonrise Kingdom was also yes. fantastic. Uh, I, I like know, his, I... his music in Moonrise was, you know, militant in a way that it really drove up the intensity. But here he plays with so many different colors and always reacting to the different places that they go on this crazy adventure. It didn't um, work for you. You know, <laughs> no, it, it did. I mean, I think the music's great. I'm actually just checking to see if it's... Uh, it comes out March next Tuesday. It'll be on sale on iTunes, but you can pre-order it now and buy one song. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I for whatever reason, I, I have a I struggle picturing people who didn't like Moonrise liking this movie. But I know that I'm wrong. You're talking I just to me that, right now. I know. I just thought Moonrise was like so sweet and accessible, especially for a Wes Anderson movie. That like I'm not really. I think that my problem is that I just can't picture anyone not liking Moonrise Kingdom, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and this movie seems like a little thornier, um, but also so great. And I mean, you're certainly welcome not to like it, but if you don't, if you don't see this movie, I don't know. Pace, what, pace seems don't important. Know. Don't you think that people get caught up in the kind of like maelstrom of chaos that occurs over the course of this film? Yeah, I make it very, very tiring, I, can, I suppose. There's a lot happening in this movie. Um, and I think, you know, it's one thing. It's very dense, like a, like a cake, <laughs> the most obvious analogy. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it, it, some people could have trouble with that. But I think that, like, you know, this is going to be one of the highlights of the year. I think that even if you're not, uh, if you're, even if you don't like Wes Anderson, if you're going to... If you're if you can ever give a filmmaker another shot, I mean this is as good a time as any to, to try. up today i wanted to bring a guest a friend of fighting in the war room onto the show mr jordan hoffman a recurring guest um, and i wanted to talk briefly about a new movie that's coming out this weekend called son of god which is a jesus biopic so jordan you you went to see son of god which is a movie actually we talked about earlier this week um and it stirred up conversation between you dave with a seven and i um because i originally had thought Son of God, this movie directed by Christopher Spencer. Who is that? Who cares? Um, I think he made a zombie movie before. Probably. He he was involved. Which is funny because Jesus uh, at the end is a zombie. He's back from the dead. Oh, my God. Um, he was involved with the Bible miniseries that aired on History Channel that was pr- produced by Mark Burnett, who is of survivor fame, of course. Right. He's also deeply religious. Him and his wife also, produced this well, yeah. Bible miniseries, and from my understanding, it's mostly um, cobbled together from footage. Like, they took out everything that wasn't Jesus, and then took the Jesus footage and made it into a movie. 
There's some truth to that. I can shed some light. Yes, um, by the way, also, Christopher Spencer, it was not a zombie movie. He made something called Nazi Mega Weapons uh, for History Channel, I believe. Um, uh, and also, the, the, the woman co-producer, she also plays uh, Mary, the mother of Christ. And her name is Roma, because this is kind of funny. Roma Downey, I she, believe, right? Yeah, I believe so. She casts herself as Mary. Yeah, she's cast as Mary, and uh, she is, in fact, born in Northern Ireland. And I don't want to get into racial issues on Fighting in the War Room, <laughs> but, you know, there is a genuine look that people from, you know, the Levant, you know, the area known as Judea, look like. And they don't normally look like they're from County Londonbury, as Roma Downey is. So well, the, the Jesus in this, I know they made a big deal about this Jesus being Hispanic. As if I that think was he's some Portuguese or something. Yeah, but he he looks pretty pretty ivory snow, but uh, that's okay because that that you know I mean you know there's a whole history of white Jesuses on film. So, but it's a little bit funny when it's the producer putting herself in the part of Mary. Mary Magdalene uh, is a woman of color. She's the only person in the film uh, that uh, looks like they're probably from possibly from somewhere <laughs> in the area. But she looked to me, and I'm going to look this up right now, while, and then I'm going to get into what I really wanted to say. Um, but the woman who played Mary Magdalene in the film, she looked to me like she was perhaps Indian. And it says here that she's born in London, so she is perhaps of subcontinental origin. Um, you know, it's, I don't want to pick apart everybody's racial background, but uh, it was <laughs> That's not why I'm having you on, fighting in the right. war room. But she sort of looked to me like she was maybe from... The India-Pakistan region, which is close, you know, which is close. But she is, in fact, British. So, okay. So, to answer your first question, from what I understand, and I've done a little bit of research about this, the show, the mini, the miniseries The Bible, which I did not watch. I gave up uh, on it. I watched only Old Testament, which I think, <laughs> as a, a writer for Times of Israel, you could probably appreciate. But Yeah, well, some of those stories are pretty nutty. Uh, but uh, what this film does is it compresses the New Testament section of the film – but according to 20th Century Fox's uh, reps, and they looked me in the eye when they said this, uh, here's the exact quote. The movie is, quote, largely, that was their word, largely new footage that was shot concurrently with the miniseries because they always intended to have a standalone product just about Jesus. Now, whether that was going to be a direct-to-video film or a theatrical film, they probably didn't know until – the big budget, the big ratings came in for right. the miniseries. That's, how, that's why I wouldn't believe that comment. How do you know you're going to do this? Uh, well, the Bible no, that I, I do buy that. I buy that because there's a, this is a huge market, and I'm going to get to that. But I mean, the, the the faith-based market is gigantic, and you know, to to throw up. I mean, if you're going to shoot this miniseries anyhow, to do a little extra work to get something feature length is not a bad idea. Whether or not you go. Uh, home video versus theatrical is another story, but um, so anyhow, um, the 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 movie is according to the rep largely new footage, um, but it definitely does feel compressed. And uh, for example, uh, there's a moment when uh, you know, sort of in the middle in the second act, when you know Jesus is is before he comes to Jerusalem and he's in uh, Capernaum and he's you know doing his ministry and somebody shouts to him, uh, John the Baptist is dead. Uh, as a warning to him, like, you know, stop, 
being a rabble rouser because John the Baptist is dead. And then the character, the actor who plays Jesus, like, is taken aback and he goes, oh. And he sits down and he says, John the Baptist is dead. He was truly my friend. Uh, he was a good man. And there's a flash memory of a shot in um, a man in dreadlocks dunking Jesus in the water. And that's, you know, obviously scenes from the miniseries. They probably did the whole John the Baptist sequence in the miniseries. But in the movie, it's just a random flashback. Now, Here's the thing. Let's say you come to this movie and don't know anything about the greatest story ever told. Let's How say you're a noob. <laughs> well, let's say – I mean there's a lot of people who are raised without religion in this country and they know you know, vagary about Bible stories. But sure. not everybody knows who John the Baptist is. I mean that's sort of a – I wouldn't call it a deep cut in the New New Testament first level. It's beyond log line and it's somewhere between log line and deep cut. So if you're coming to this movie and don't really know what the significance of that, it's just awful because it, it's totally out of context. Takes you know just sort of takes you out from the movie, and it, it, it's it's indicative of of bad storytelling. Um, but what's fascinating to me, and this is why I think the movie is sort of a failure on on two different levels, um, it is entirely meant as a story for people who are already into. Jesus, who are already believers. It's for, for churchgoers, by churchgoers, preaching to the choir, so to speak. Um, everything in the film is very surface level. You never have anything um, in the movie where you get to see Jesus between the greatest hits. You know, he, he's doing the loaves and the fishes. He's walking on the water. He's doing all the things from the stories. He's really just realizing all the famous beats for a new... Exactly, generation. and it's you know taking the famous paintings from art history and and stringing them together, um, which is fine, I guess, if you are already of the faithful, you want to see that in a feature film. But if and I think this was the intention of Mark Burnett, he wants to bring spread the good news. He wants to bring more people to the church. It's not going to happen because it's an insider's story that's really bland. And just like, oh, here's some dude in a robe walking around saying, follow me. He gets all these people to quit their jobs. You know, Peter stops being a fisherman and Matthew stops trading money in the temple uh, because uh, this dude says, come with me and I'll show you the light. Right. And he doesn't ever really by, explain by making, what that means. By making a bland movie that's just right down the middle retelling the story of Jesus, they're not trying to hit a certain demographic. Like they would have been better off making something that would skew cool for the kids. <laughs> I believe so. I believe so. And here's what's, here's what's doubly weird about it. Okay, so let's say this is a movie for the people who are already on board. People who go to the, the tank, nativity so uh, yeah. pageant the, every year. And those people should be offended because this movie is so cheap and so bad. The acting is horrible. The music is canned. The special effects look like the stuff bundled on iMovie you know it's just the final ascension to heaven is like a, a wipe just like a white wipe it looks like you know it looks like somebody who just opened up iMovie did it for the first time well, this is definitely a TV production and oddly enough I remember because I watched the first half of the Bible miniseries and it had a lot it was trying to be effects heavy which it shouldn't have been because the effects were so cheap. They had all these like <laughs> yeah. flying angels and people turning yeah. to, to salt and burning bushes, but it all looked like shit because they had to spread their, their budget so thin. 
Yeah, no, it's funny because the the movie does begin with a very brief recap of the Old Testament, and those special effects look bigger and broader. Previously, oh, you know, it really does open with the previously, and then the the remainder of it is just it's a couple of helicopter shots of 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 Jesus and the gang walking around the desert, um, but you know. Uh, walking on the water looks really lame, and you know the crucifixion doesn't. You know, it's a couple of CG shots afterwards. But of, is of just seeing it enough? Like, I wonder if we, you can put yourself in the mind of of someone who would just just want to. Is this like seeing Superman come back to the screen again? Like, we can no. reboot. Yeah, I, I know. I understand exactly. We just need to like see this again. I understand exactly what you're saying, and no. And here's the thing: in 1960 something or other, I forget the exact year. George Stevens made a huge. 170 minute or 200 minute movie called the called the greatest story ever told and it, with Max von Sydow sure. as Christ and it sort of takes the same approach which is we're just going to take the bible we're going to take the quotes from uh you know from scripture and we're not going to deviate from scripture we're just going to like you know just recreate scenes and i i must confess it's sort of a boring movie but it's gigantic. It's spectacle. Every shot is technicolor gorgeous. It's big, wide screen. So as a pageant, it works, right? Uh, then there are other Jesus movies that I think are fantastic. For example, uh, Pasolini's Gospel According to St. Matthew is very sort of a humble, stripped down with anachronistic music, black and white, which is uh, also the dialogue is taken straight from scripture. But it's, you know, it's an evocative film. Scorsese's Last Temptation is controversial, but it's a... It has exactly what you're looking for in terms of what is Jesus like when he's off stage, right? You know, what was his home life like? You know, what what was he thinking when he was struggling with his divinity that was thrust upon him? You know, and and uh, I think that's a fascinating movie. Which and a Mark great, Burnett would deem sacrilege. Well, I don't even. I mean, some maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think it's been enough time that people can look past. You know, everything in that movie that is sacrilegious or you know that could offend is ultimately rebuked by Jesus, right? It's all a fantasy sequence where he comes down off the cross and he lives the life of a, of a man and he has sex with multiple women, granted. Uh, but, you know, at the end he says, no, no, I reject that and I, I, I want to do the right thing. So, but nevertheless, those images are striking for those who are uh, of the faith. Um, but there's really nothing in this movie that is going to bring uh, uh, someone who maybe doesn't have a religious background or an understanding of the Bible stories right. in this. It's just going to be bland. The only scenes that are interesting are the ones that do deviate from Scripture a little bit. They're the scenes between Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman uh, uh, governor uh, in, Jer in uh, Jerusalem at the time, and the head of the uh, Jewish uh, sort of uh, middle management of the area, uh, the high priest Caiaphas, who is sort of a legendary figure in, uh, in, in anti-Semitism. He's always, you know, he's the one at whose feet uh, many blame the, the killing of Christ. And in Mel Gibson's movie, uh, he's played by a, a, a dirty crook-nosed Jew. And in this movie, he's more like Mayor Carcetti from The Wire. You know, it's like uh, he, he just wants everybody to chill out. Uh, he wants 
you know, he wants the rabble razzles to go away. He wants Rome to leave the Jews alone. He's looking out for the people. And he is something of a more sympathetic character. And those scenes with him are the best things in the movie, the only thing in the movie worth checking out. Uh, toward the end, the movie does just turn him into a bad guy. But he he, he sort of, uh, you know, I think the audience doesn't condemn him 100% because they know that, it. you know, he thought about it. Uh, at least, and he right. weighed the pros and cons, and ultimately said, "No, we got to get rid of this guy." Uh, but, but his his sort of transformation is interesting, and you know, something that does not come from scripture at all. That's something that came out of interpretations on behalf of these uh, uh, writers and producers. And I, I did read uh, that it was done this way uh, as a reaction to Mel Gibson. There were some... Well, that's uh, what I'm curious about because that, I mean, Passion of the Christ was such a phenomenon. Um, yeah. And, uh, it was a huge, huge hit. I think it made like $400 million just here at home. And, yeah. I mean, it obviously struck people. It's what people needed in a way. Like, we needed a Grindhouse Jesus movie to be <laughs> as bloody and fucked up as possible to be like, wow, this is really what he did. Like, it's, it's forcing you to it's consider... Very... The sacrifice, which I feel like at this Slow point, if you're going to convince people... And it's meant to shock. I don't think that uh, Passion of the Christ is meant to be a grindhouse film. Well, it's not uh, a grindhouse, but it's purposefully... I mean, it, it's trying to provoke. It's pr- trying yes. to say, this is bloody and real, and someone sacrificed for you, and feel the impact of this moment. And it's it has to be that provocative, because all these watered-down Jesus stories are just, are just for the audience's that are, are going to see them time. Yeah, and time I'll again. buy that. I'll buy that. I mean, I, I, Passion of the Christ is, is a weird movie. I kind of like it actually. I've seen it a All few the, times. All like, the devil imagery and stuff. It's yeah. Well, it's bizarre. Caleb Dashanel shot it. It's no joke. It's the last brilliant thing that Caleb Dashanel shot. He was allowed to sort of go bananas. It's kind of hard to watch. It's very violent. Uh, but it, you know, it, 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 as a, as a movie, it's kind of weird because it's a little bit boring because you know forty percent of it is just a guy being beaten. You know, hamburger Jesus. He's By the way, Caleb Dashano is very upset that you didn't appreciate his cinematography in Winter's Tale. Oh uh, God, <laughs> <laughs> that had special effects about as good as Son of God. It's oh. uh, terrible. Um, anyhow, so uh, just sort of summing up because I know you don't want to spend too much time on this. Uh, the, the thing that strikes me as so strange about Son of God is uh, a it's not for the non-believers. It's not for noobs. So Burnett fails if he's trying to bring new people to the faith because they're not going to be intrigued by this very bland, poorly written and uninteresting movie that's all for insiders. If you don't know who John the Baptist is already, that scene's going to be baffling to you. That's A. And B, uh, if you are a member of the faith – you deserve better. You know, Jesus is a very popular guy. You know, he, he's got a lot of followers and they put a lot of money into their faith-based uh, product and they deserve to be treated well. This is, this is a, you know, if you want to make an exploitation film, and I don't mean that in a negative way, I mean that in, you have a targeted audience, you want to serve their needs. If you want to make a movie just for the devoted, that's cool, but do it big and that doesn't only mean have a budget although that's part of it 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 just takes some care and you know or or it seems like you know they always say if you're going to do avoid sweeping biopics because they end up collapsing on themselves take an instance of jesus's life i bet there's so much stuff 
I mean, I, I read the Bible back in my in my youth for some bizarre reason. I know the <laughs> stories, but I, I don't remember all the intricacies. I'm sure there's little things to explore that Jesus did and encountered that would be that would make for a good movie. Yeah, if you got a good, uh, I mean, the, the theater has this, but like you could make a great, you know, film about just the story of Lazarus if you do it right. You know, if if uh, David Mamet were to write it, uh, you know, it would it, you could really have something there, but. Uh, uh, it's tough because, uh, you know, listen, one of my favorite Jesus movies of all, uh, Jesus is a side character and he's barely in it. It's the story of Barabbas, which is uh, a footnote in, in uh, history and a footnote in the Bible. Uh, and it's uh, – what's his name? It's Anthony Quinn plays Barabbas and he is the guy, for those who don't know um, – and this factors in the Son of God a lot. They extrapolate a lot of Barabbas when uh, – uh, Pilate is says to the to the masses, you can it's Passover, so we'll let you free one one prisoner. You can free Jesus, or you can free Barabbas. And they say free Barabbas, and Barabbas was sort of a thief. I was actually doing some research on this because in the movie they present him in Son of God. They present him as a uh, sort of a, a Occupy Wall Street type of guy. You know, he doesn't want to pay his taxes, but he's got a scar on his face and he's bald, uh, and that totally made up. Although in one of the four Gospels, they refer to Barabbas as a bandit. And at the time, bandit was also used for revolutionary. So maybe it comes from <laughs> a, a little bit of truth. truth maybe. But anyway, in this film, Barabbas is meant to sort of like a, uh, a thug, but also sort of a, I don't want to pay my taxes thug. And the movie kind of condemns him. He's like a bad guy. Anyway, so they free Barabbas because in this, Caiaphas and the, high, the, the Jews – they don't let any of the, the, the nice people, the followers of, of Jesus, into the area where they can vote. And it's such a cheesy little cheap-looking set too. It's so disgusting. So they have all these extras there and the good guys, all the disciples and Mary Magdalene are, are behind a fence. And they go, who should we release? And they go, release Barabbas. And they're like, yeah. And then Mary Magdalene's like, no release Jesus no but she's out of the room so she's crying and then they cut to a close up of Caiaphas and he's laughing so I'm like oh boy that's, I, that's I gonna think I'd rather about. produce an audio drama of the life of Jesus starring <laughs> you wait uh, wait but then but then Pontius <laughs> Pilate says you would rather release a murderer and then they cut to Jesus in the crown of thorns so my point is that's a good story beat that, that scene actually is good it's one of the few good scenes but it is not really taken from scripture. It's or certainly not taken from truth. I mean, there's no record of Romans ever allowing citizens to choose to to, <laughs> to have a a, a a prisoner, uh, you know, get you know get released, you know. And of course, this was parodied in in uh, Life of Brian quite well. Uh, anyhow, so that's Barabbas. There's a great movie from the <laughs> I imagine the late fifties, early sixties. I don't remember called Barabbas, starring Anthony Quinn, nineteen sixty one. There you go. And it is great because uh, it, it opens with – there's a little bit of JC action and then Barabbas is freed and it's about the next few years of his life when he's a scoundrel and then he's trapped in a prison. He's in a sulfur mine. He escapes and then ultimately he becomes a Jesus figure himself uh, and that is a great – great Bible movie uh, because it's fun and exciting and it gets all the messages you need out there about being nice. And so it sounds like Son of God is a movie I should take my grandma to if I want to score major points. But uh, Well, it's, it, it's funny you should say that because as, I, as it ends, the closing credits has like a Christian rock song and all these outtakes and just like smiles. Outtakes? 
A Jesus well, blooper reel? Well, I was Joe. I turned to the guy I was sitting with and said, I hope this goes cannibal run and we get a blooper reel. But it was no, it was just some of the stuff from the miniseries that didn't make it in. Oh, so, you know, it's the other images. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what, you use every piece of the buffalo, I guess. So it was, uh, it was uh, you know, they're showing outtakes and it's a Christian rock. I'm like, oh, this is so bad. So I just, at that point, I was respectful during the movie. I was giggling and I leave and uh, they had papered the house with some. Uh, church folk and uh <laughs> there was an older woman uh there with her mother who was much older and they were just moved to tears by the film oh my god which i say yeah i mean god bless that's who am i to judge i like star trek which many people are uh, think is ridiculous so i i will not begrudge them but i do find i do think that young anyone under a certain age anyone who is media savvy and there are certainly many Christians who are media savvy, many people of faith who are hip and get it. They will be underserved by this film and they ought to be angry. Those people, which is probably the majority in 10 years, uh, these people deserve better. Uh, Jesus deserves better. <laughs> Jesus deserves better. Well, and this does not displace our favorite Jesus movie, Jesus Christ Superstar, I would hope. Yeah, no, you and Jesus I both Christ... love for some reason. Yeah. It's a great film. I mean, I was just watching it again, clips on YouTube. I mean, the music is phenomenal. There's that. But as a movie, it's good. And I think most people think of it as a play. Most people think of it as something they did in high school, maybe, or they sang in the chorus. But uh, it's really interesting the way it's shot, uh, you know, has sort of anachronistic uh, uh, costumes. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's basically like hippies impersonating the story of Jesus. That's how yeah, it opens. It, yeah, it opens with like a hippie. Um, uh, theater troupe unpacking their their bus, and they assume the roles, and then uh, it mixes a lot of very sort of blank stage stuff with uh, you know actual sets, uh, actual location work, and uh, you know it's great. It's hey, great. The director of Thomas Crown Affair and Rollerball. Yeah, no, wrong. totally. Norman <laughs> Jewison and, and in the Heat of the Night, he was no joke in his day, and has a black Judas Iscariot, which probably would be. Uh, more controversial now than it was then, right? Um, and uh, yeah, it's a good. Uh, that's a great uh, Jesus movie. King of Kings is is my favorite. Uh, we'll get to the recommends section of the film. So don't watch <laughs> Son of God, but do watch Jesus Christ Superstar. And Jesus Christ Superstar is an, also has an interesting spin because because it's a lot from Judas's point of view, and it positions Christ as a revolutionary, which I think is very interesting. Um, but the big one, if you want to go Hollywood, um, you can't beat King of Kings, which is Nicholas Ray's film from 61 with Jeffrey Hunter, very handsome uh, Jeffrey Hunter uh, as Jesus, and what makes it is the set design. Salome's Dance of the Veils is just gorgeous, big Technicolor stuff, um, but all the beats are in there, and it's it's really great. It's it's a top notch Jesus movie. Better certainly, but than um, greatest movie ever told is is quite boring. And uh, Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth is okay, but King of Kings is where it's at. And then there was Son of God, shot through mud, and shot to be forgotten. Yeah, and also there's a movie called Ultra Christ, but I'm I'm not gonna <laughs> available not on gonna, Netflix. Yeah, you look by. that up, fighting in the war room, listeners. I'm not gonna pit my own stuff on the internet, but I think uh, you, you just can look at it. Did. Try not to get worried. Try not to turn on to problems that upset you. Well, don't you know everything's alright? Yes, everything's fine, and we want you to sleep well tonight. 
Let the world turn without you tonight If we try, we'll get by So forget all about us What do you want to know about nonstop? It's basically um, it, nonstop is basically a murder she wrote episode with um, Liam Neeson playing Jessica Fletcher with a gun on an airplane. So it's, so it's not taken on an airplane. No, it's more Agatha Christie on an airplane. Definitely, this is very much that a mystery. Yeah, because he's, well, the problem is Liam Neeson is still just beating people up for some reason. He doesn't really use the mind as much as you would hope. He uses picking up people by their necks and throwing them into, you know, the the uh, back of the airplane and interrogating them until they eventually either die or turn against him. And then the whole movie just kind of explodes into a fury of nonsense. Oh, good. I yeah, enjoyed like, it um, on some level. What was that movie he made where uh, Aiden Quinn took over his life? You know what I'm talking about? Good God, Unknown. Man. Was that the one? Oh, yeah. The January yeah. Jones? Because that one yeah. also exploded. Is that another, um, I cannot remember his last name, Cholera? <laughs> what? Colette, Jamie's. Yeah, Jamie same Colette's guy. Yeah, oh, yeah. This is, uh, uh, this is awesome. I call him Cholera. <laughs> uh, I, I will say. to American filmmaking. Uh, nonstop is is bouncy. It's it's on its toes the whole time, despite being trapped inside of an airplane. And it's a great New York movie. I keep telling people that because they don't realize that it was shot on sound stages here in New York, and it's full of New York kind of like TV and theater actors, which I think is always cool. Uh, does the movie take place in New York? No, it takes place on a... Then how the hell is it a great New York movie? Get out of here. Because it was shot in New York. It's about the people. Come on. You know what? The people make up New York. New York's not a city. It's a community. Get get out of here. Wow. Nonstop. Uh, redeem yourself by telling us uh, what was this week's lightning round question. Dis. uh, What was in honor of nonstop? What's your favorite movie hijacking? And I have mine, honestly. I'm just going to go... Because no one's going to pick this. I'm going to pick at... Uh, the Jant M, who said the hijacking of Avatar. Yeah, I was about to pick by that. M Night Shyamalan. <laughs> Obviously, that strikes me close to home. Not not really what we were going for with the answers, and not really what other people picked. But bravo, sir, Avatar. Oh, you know what? Think outside the think outside the lines. I approve. I, I, right. Yes. What's your thinking outside I, the lines? I'm going with Adam Please, who is uh, thinking inside Adam. the lines, but doing it well. Uh, he says the only truly essential movie ever made, <laughs> Con Air. Uh, Con Air is I don't know what sort of like crazy brain drugs Simon West was on, but he was boxing way above his weight class with Con Air. Con Air is like Michael Bay good. Uh, it's I, I often mistaken really it for Michael give. Bay because it has like Michael yeah. Bay Michael Bay players in it. Steve and Buscemi really throws you off. Rock. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, Con Air. It's on TV a lot these days. Uh, I think it's it been on excellent. TV since it came out in the 90s, every day. <laughs> I've noticed it especially recently, but it is excellent. And, uh, yeah, um, I'll go with that. I am going with our friend, Mr. Bowers, who says Air Force One, because as goofy as the part is, Gary Oldman fucking commits to the insanity. And I remember going to see Air Force One with my family when I was in, say, seventh grade or so, and not really understanding why I thought Gary Oldman was attractive and not really getting it. But now I get it. Is that Get so Off right. My Plane? Is it's that? The... Oh, yeah. Hell yeah, that's Get Off yeah. My Plane. Wait, I'm sorry. It's get the... Off My Plane. Was that it's a pretty good the only one? movie performance you can see from space. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I'll take it. Gary Oldman was looking good. It's a fun movie to watch. Don't tell me that if it was on as often as Con Air that you would not watch it. Oh, are you kidding me? Con Air? I mean, uh, whatever. What the fuck is it called? Can I ask you something uh, about Con Air really Wait, quickly? I never see Air Force One on cable. Air, Air Force One is excellent, and Gary Oldman is excellent. It should in be it. on cable more. Let's get that to happen. Did you watch Con Air recently, David, or do you just have it great in yeah. your memory? So in Con Air, yeah, Steve both. Buscemi like wanders off to a playground with a little girl. Yeah. Right. Does that resolve? Or does he stay with a little girl, and then that's the last time we see him? Do you know? I think it. I think it resolves innocently. If, that's frightening. Uh, what a frightening uh, thing to put in such a carefree action movie. I, it's it's dark. Uh, let's see if in the three seconds we have left, if I can find the answer to this on the Wikipedia. Well, maybe summary. we can wrap up, oh, wow. and you can and you can yeah, throw it in into your outro. <laughs> uh, patches. Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, I guess this is the end. Uh, we're going out. Wait. Oh. Oh. It's not over. Gar- it's not so. He, <laughs> we we cut back to Steve Buscemi okay. with the girl's doll, oh but we see the girl waving to the plane from the ground. So she has was. not been molested and eaten by Steve Buscemi. That's good to know. And Although eaten. S- wow. Steve Buscemi is uh, the only surviving convict to escape at the end of the movie, and is uh, seen <laughs> playing craps in a casino. While a police officer finds the doll in the wreckage. Hmm. Wow. Dun Patches dun dun. <laughs> Please tell us where people can find you. Yes, I am at Patches. I'm on the internet at Mr. Patches. That's a Twitter handle. And uh, I write about things and I put it on mattpatches.com, which is also my Tumblr. I, I, should, I never say that. If you're on Tumblr, follow me. I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And that's it. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood and on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. Happy Oscars weekend, everyone. Sorry about all the tweeting. It's going to be over soon. We'll get back to normal life. And uh, then David's going to go to South by Southwest. There's some exciting times ahead. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Bye.